This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 124, a holiday flashback to Paul Shirky and Dog Sled Adventures. Hey friends, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is another holiday flashback edition, and today I am very pleased to bring to you Paul Shirky with his dog sledding adventures with his Wintergreen Lodge up in Minnesota. It is a delightful show with amazing stories that span the North Pole, the South Pole, the Arctic Circle, Alaska, Siberia, and more. Really, really cool. So you're going to enjoy today's show. But before we dive in there, my sister, Paula Moldenhauer, is releasing a special holiday book this week, and I want to make sure that I give a plug to her. Paula was on the show a few weeks back where she was talking about the new freedom that she has found to be an adventurer again after raising a family, losing a lot of weight and getting back into shape and discovering the fun of that new adventure. But her book today is a faith-based Christian book. It's a devotional series that she put together over the last 10 years of her life as she was raising her family, and it is a delightful book. She wanted to make sure that everyone knew. She is going to offer it this week for free, two days on Amazon, Kindle edition, and that's just a way to kick off the launch of this wonderful new work that she's put together. I'd like to mention that this isn't your standard dry devotional type book. Uh, Paula really poured her heart and soul and struggles and joys into this work. And so if you are looking for a faith-based inspiration this holiday season, then please check it out. The name of the book is Soul Sense Awaken by Paula Moldenhauer. And so Soul Sense Awaken, you can find that on Amazon Kindle Edition this week. And if you watch closely, there will be a couple of days where it will be offered absolutely free of charge. So Thanks, Paula, for getting this out there and letting us know about it. Now, on to the interview with Paul Shirky about dog sled adventuring. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Our show today is with Paul Shirky. Paul Shirky leads dog sledding adventures in the Boundary Waters area in northern Minnesota. He also leads Arctic expeditions, and you too could be a part of that. Paul Shirky first started dog sledding back in his college years, and he has made a business out of this now for over 30 years. Paul, welcome to the program. Yeah, I'm talking to you now from uh, the Canadian border of Minnesota, and I'm looking out my window at... uh, one of America's most precious pieces of real estate. It's called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. It's the most popular, most beloved, protected wilderness area in the world. And a quarter million people come here every year to travel by canoe and dog sled and ski and hike uh, the thousands of lakes that are all still clean enough that you can dip your cup from and drink out of. It's a very special place set aside in perpetuity as a place of natural sights and natural sounds and um and also, it serves the livelihood for our little tiny town of Ely, Minnesota, where there's several dozen folks that uh, own canoe outfitting businesses, and then a few of us that make winter a way of life. And so, um, my wife Sue and our kids are home here out on the edge of the wilderness in a 
piece of woods called wintergreen because it's carpeted in a wonderful plant called wintergreen and um, so our business is adopted the same name both our dog sledding lodge and my wife's line of um, outdoor apparel that is manufactured and distributed right here as well from Ely, Minnesota. So wintergreen is what we're all about. Wow, I see you have a fantastic URL, dogsledding.com. That's how people can get in touch with you? Yeah, we lucked out. We got in while the getting was good in the URL game way back when. So dogsledding.com covers everything we do. Take a moment, if you would, to tell us about dog sledding and about wintergreen. Well, although I was a late bloomer to the dog sledding game, I didn't jump into the fray until my college years. We've made up for lost time now because we've been in it for 30-some years, and wintergreen is the oldest and largest uh, recreational dog sledding center, well, in the, in the Milky Way galaxy as well, certainly the biggest in the U.S., and not that numbers count, but um, we've, we've uh, been involved for a long time, and we love it, and um, so we have a stellar crew of several dozen guides who work here with the dog sledding program. Obviously, we're very seasonal from December through March, um, and of course, it's become a way of life for my wife and our three now grown children who are, of course, often about doing their things around the planet, but they still cycle back. Peter, Bria, and Barrett, our kids, cycle back every winter to guide trips for us. So, um, But luck of the draw for me, um, my segue to the whole world of winter and, and dogs came by way of a connection with the master of the art, a fellow named Will Steger, who is the preeminent contemporary polar explorer of both ends of the world, North and South Poles. And uh, Will hails here from Ely, Minnesota as well, and I got to know him um, many decades back and he sort of took me under his wings and showed me the ropes of the winter world and um, also turned me on to a beautiful place the arctic so, um, winter green while it's our family's livelihood and our home it's also my ticket to ride because it's been our uh, connection to travel the arctic um so paul i understand you're getting ready for an arctic expedition right now you're headed out here in about a week right yes we are we're packing up as we speak uh, gear spread out all over our kitchen floor, um, headed to a beautiful part of the far north, the Svalbard Islands that lie halfway between Norway and the North Pole in the Barents Sea off the uh, coast of northern Russia. Uh, spectacular spires of granite that rise up out of the Arctic Ocean and uh, captain ice caps and glaciers and uh, snowscapes um, that go on for hundreds of miles and dozens of islands, uh, and a host of Arctic wildlife. It's the principal hat for the eastern Arctic uh, polar bears. There's some 3,500 polar bears that call Svalbard home. That's 1,000 more bears, and there are people there. Um, but there is a sizable little community named after all things a, a, a prospector who actually carved out most of his career back here in Minnesota, a guy named John Longyear, who left behind 100 years ago in Svalbard, um, it's little industry, which is coal mining of all things up near the North Pole. His name, the village in that island, is called Longyearbyen, the Norwegian word for Longyear Town. Uh, but 2,000 folks live there and call the High Arctic home when they live just 600 miles to the North Pole. Uh, and it's a very happening community with a space-age uh, university and an opera hall, an indoor shopping center, um, swimming pools, and uh, lots of young families. And it's, it's one of the most unlikely things you'd ever expect to encounter, but there it is. Um, and then just out of their little village and their home is this magnificent Arctic land mountainscape of ice caps and glaciers that just uh, awaiting adventure travelers like us who uh, go up there to dock sled. Wow, that's neat. So first, how do you get there? I assume you're flying in, but... Yeah, 
Yeah, well, it's it's surprisingly uh, easy to access in part because the economy there is now increasingly driven uh, with it being the go-to place for European adventure travelers. So there's actually direct jet flights from Oslo, Norway, that take it to Longyearbyen, um, and uh, then off you go. And they uh, so thousands of folks this time of year. This is this is. Uh, this is peak peak season here right now because the long months of winter darkness have ended. It's round-the-clock sunlight now. Uh, the temps are, by Arctic standards, fairly moderate, and um, they've got uh, a, a wide array of, of adventure travel options from kayaking to dog sledding and snowmobiling and ice climbing um, and uh, ice caving and um, uh, wildlife tours uh, around the perimeters of the island to see the polar bears and the walrus and... Uh, so it, it's it's a pretty amazing place and, and little known to American travelers, but it's a big, big deal in Europe. That's fun. So how do you prepare for an expedition like this? What type of gears uh, do you have to pack up? You're going to be out there for about a month? Yeah, yeah, we'll be gone for a month, and what, well, about half the time we'll be actually out on the land in Svalbard and uh, they're doing some other things there. But, uh, yeah, fortunately, the... Uh, Preparing for these Arctic trips kind of comes with the territory here because we're hitting it hard every day all winter long in Minnesota from, well, early December through end of March. We're out every day, all day with the dog teams and our skis, traveling our own beautiful Boundary Waters wilderness here. Um, so we're pretty well set to jet come spring. <laughs> we're, we're, we're fit and buff and rare to roar, so not a whole lot of physical prep needs to go into that. It just kind of uh, is built into the practice here with our winter uh, events. But obviously, we've got a specialized set of gear that we're sifting through here right now with um, uh, stoves and tents and, and uh, sleeping systems suitable for traveling in the uh, um, high Arctic. Uh, <clears throat> of course, here in the north woods of Minnesota, the luxury of enjoying beautiful campfires each night around which we can uh, melt snow for our water supply and, and cook meals. But obviously, in the Arctic, we're using specialized uh, white gas stoves that are calibrated for uh, use in cold temps um, <clears throat> and uh, so we're sifting through that right now as well as uh, piecing together our sleeping systems. Um, the nights, even though it's around the clock daylight now, the nights still do dip down, typically below zero. So, of course, our sleeping systems involve <clears throat> specialized super light camping mattresses as well as um, uh, down sleeping bags and then a bivy sack system that turns your sleeping bag into a, a personal tent so you can actually just sleep outside or, or gather in a tent where we will enjoy our meals together. But most folks find that... Um, it's far more comfortable sleeping outside, um, not so much under the stars because we'll be in round-the-clock daylight, but outside where the air is cold and dry, inside tents. One of the little bugaboos of winter travel is uh, sleeping in tents in the wintertime. It may not be all you might think it is because tents get quite clammy um, with all the moisture uh, from your breath and perspiration that uh, collects in the tent as frost, and it'll actually start snowing on you from the frost collecting on the tent ceilings throughout the night, so more times than not, folks opt to sleep outside in the midi systems. It's like a little personal single-person tent that wraps over your sleeping bag, so you can uh, enjoy the cold, dry air and avoid the, the clammy, damp sensation that comes with um, winter tenting. Interesting. You know, most people would think, okay, it's wintertime, I don't want to sleep outside, <laughs> but you're telling yeah. us that that's actually the more comfortable option. Well, that's interesting, because we have people, we host folks from we host about 500 folks here every winter at Wintergreen for our trips here on the home front in northern Minnesota. They come from all over the world. Many of them have never even seen snow before, and of course this is one of their big life bucket list things to come and do. But you're exactly right. If they've opted to join us on one of our dog sled camping adventures rather than, say, our lodge-based 
dog said the Cajuns, well, they're headed camping. Most of them are quite apprehensive about the thought of uh, not being able to huddle inside a tent each night. But curiously, on most every trip all winter long, while most folks hightail uh, to the tent the first night, they figure out pretty quick it's a lot more comfortable and actually a lot more beautiful being outside. Well, and especially here in northern Minnesota in the winter, because the added bonus of sleeping outside is a pretty good chance in one of the more magical um, revelations of the natural world here, and that's, of course, the uh, aurora borealis, the northern lights, which obviously you're not going to get a shot at if you're inside the tent. So sleeping out in the big system gives you the added bonus of enjoying that spectacle as well. A question about that system. Um I get the idea of a bivy sack and being outside, but my concern is how do you keep your nose and face warm enough to have fresh air and not freeze your nose off at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, there's sort of a cowl, like a little tunnel around the hood of our sleeping bags that you can adjust with drawstrings to form almost like a little preheat chamber where the air as you're pulling down into the tunnel to breathe through the night is kind of pre-warmed by um, body heat that's ventilating through that little chimney off the top of your bag um and uh so it you know it's it's uh not 70 it's sunny laying there it's still cold air you're breathing but it is pretty warm um and for folks that find that still a little less than comfortable they'll pull um, a neck gaiter or their balaclava up over their nose or over their mouth so that too will help pre-warm the air that you are inhaling throughout the night um so like most things in life it's a skill that takes a little adjusting and, and accommodating but we're, we're always gratified to find out how, how complete beginners, even say folks from New Zealand or South Africa or, or other southern climes where they've never had a chance to do this before, uh, figured out pretty fast and a few nights into the experience there, they uh, got it down. So uh, what comfort rating on your sleeping bags do you recommend for that kind of sleeping? Well, we go with overkill. We go with overkill. Um, these bags that we use here are actually rated to 80 below zero. We've never, never, of course, had a chance to test them at that temperature. But because we're traveling by dog team, uh, one of the duties of traveling by dog team is you're not frantically uh, trying to shed every last little ounce from your payload. The dogs are very powerful. They're not concerned about a few extra pounds on board those sleds. So, say, as compared with a, a winter uh, skier who's traveling with a backpack and Every ounce is precious in terms of your comfort in skiing with all your earthly belongings tucked into a pack. When you're traveling by dog team, you have the luxury of enjoying, well, a couple of wonderful perks. One is um, you can uh, sleeping systems that uh, uh, are more than suited for any conditions you'll accommodate, which basically means you're crawling into a big, giant, down comforter every night and just kind of swaddled in there with the uh, loft and density of these massive winter sleeping systems. But again, it's a luxury that only traveling by dogs allows you. You never get that kind of a sleeping system tucked inside to a dainty backpack. Well, on the other option that dog sitting allows is we're also not uh, having to compromise our um, dining pleasure by going with freeze-dried foods, which, although some of them nowadays figured out ways to make them reasonably tasty, is still a far cry from uh, fresh frozen uh, entrees and fresh frozen vegetables. So, again, dog setting allows you that luxury to carry fresh frozen foods and put together uh, uh, pretty fine meals each night uh, and uh, put a little extra polish on the on the winter experience. Well, that's nice. You know, the, the biggest challenge that I've had on winter trips is that I'm always carrying everything on my back. And it takes more gear in the winter than it does in the summer, let's face it. And the packs get heavy, and that makes it more difficult to negotiate the snow conditions. And so the dog sled solves that problem. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it's pretty pleasant travel out there. Um, although, actually, uh, the dogs that are there to pull our lifeline along behind us, most of us are actually on skis, but not so much our participants, the folks that sign on to join us on these trips. Many of them, of course, are really excited and, and all about uh, being on the backs of those sleds and driving those sleds, and indeed they do. The experience here at Wintergreen is entirely on. The folks that join us are uh, one, uh, part and parcel with their own dog team for the duration because they're introduced to their dogs on the day they arrive, and then it, those dogs are there to take care as they choose throughout their stay to water, feed, harness, and, and um, drive the sleds and then bed them down at night. Um, and, of course, the fun thing is, is that uh, the folks that are here with us each winter are all about the dogs. In fact, they seem to have as much they seem to have as much fun just having hang time with the dogs at the kennel or in camp at night as they do actually driving the teams. Um, but the rest of us, including some of the folks that sign on to join us on these trips, opt to travel on skis. Um, the dog says they're plodding along at a pace that accommodates skiers. We're not setting any ground speed records out there. Our dogs aren't wired to win the Iditarod. These are freighting dogs, and they clip along at three to five, maybe six or seven miles an hour. Um, but it's a comfortable pace at which you can ski along with them. And, of course, the beauty of skiing along behind the sled is, uh, well, skiing is a wonderful activity, and plus it uh, keeps your uh, engines idling so you're staying warm out there and keeps you engaged as well. And um, and then when needed, you can pop your skis on the sleds to give the dogs a hand if we're going up over a mountain pass or through a tough portage trail or on tight corners where we need to assist the sled. Um, so it ends up being a combination of both uh, driving the sleds as well as uh, uh, propelling yourself along on skis or it's deep snow and you might opt for the snowshoes instead. Now, it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, will you tell us a story of a, an amazing experience that got you hooked on the sport? And take us there. Tell us what it felt like, you know, what the, the smells were and the temperatures and, and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my first Arctic expedition um, was actually back in 1984. Well, we had set our sights on trying something big, really big. We were determined somehow, some way to put the parts and pieces together to actually dog set from the north coast of North America all the way to the top of the world to the North Pole. But to make that happen, we knew we had a whole lot of learning to do and a lot of gear to sift through. So we put together a plan for a, a, a sizable training expedition, which took us by dog team from Duluth, Minnesota, all the way across the continent of North America to the northernmost village uh, in the USA, which is Barrow, Alaska. And to get there from Minnesota <laughs> obliged us to undertake a 5,000-mile, five-month dog set expedition in the winter of 84. Wow. Um, and um, the, uh, but a huge chunk of that track, we, we dog-sided across the Canadian Barrens and Central Arctic and reached the shores of the Arctic Ocean and the Beaufort Sea, and then worked our way down the coast of North America um, towards Alaska. But in 84, there was a curious uh, distraction along the way. It had to do with a little political intrigue back then in the 80s, which uh, Concerned the Cold War, of course, there was our kerfuffle with the then Soviet Union at the time. And given those concerns, uh, an odd spinoff of those decades of the Cold War was that every 100 miles along the 2,000-mile coastline of North America, at our taxpayer expense, the U.S. had a listening post. These were called due line stations, due meaning distant early warning system, DEW. Uh, and so every 100 miles along the entire coast of North America, some 60 of these listening posts were set up out there, little concrete bunkers with a radar dome on top and 
and six guys inside they were working 24/7 uh, at the uh, computer screens, watching for that blip that suggests that the Soviets are winging their way across the Arctic Ocean to bomb us to smithereens. Well, of course, the blip on the screen never happened, um, uh, so it was a pretty lonely, uh, boring existence for the crews that manned these stations. But then we showed up. We showed up in the winter of '84. So every 100 miles along our dogshead route, we had the option to dip in for a hot cup of tea and in an attempt at conversation with some uh, uh, pretty strange guys. They'd been out there in the woods too long, out there in the Arctic too long, for sure, sitting in those bunkers. But um, uh, but it gave us a distraction. But uh, one of the more curious uh, connections we've ever encountered in the Arctic took place there because at one of those stations, they had a mascot. They had a mascot, which was this uh, feral dog, wild dog that had shown up one day at the station months back, and they, it was too cagey, uh, too coy for them to handle, but the dog would show up every day at 6, like clockwork, when he could smell the sounds of dinner cooking in the little concrete bunkers, and then he would, the dog would patiently wait outside for his turn to leftovers. So we enjoyed caring uh, and watching the same little routine while we stayed with him for a few days as well. The station, you know, the wild dog that they had called Sam would show up out of the blowing snow in the mist at 6 o'clock every night to get his hand out, and then he'd dart off into the snow, and that was it. Well, as it happened, when we continued on the trail upon leaving that station, some miles down the pike, we realized that, that this wild dog was following us, and, of course, we felt bad because we had unwittingly lured the station mascot away from these guys, and but there was no, no rhyme or reason to it, no way to tell whether he was going to stick with us or, or head back. and So we pushed on. And um, as we pushed out the days that followed, uh, Richard, one of our team members, made his personal mission to try his luck each day at befriending this wild dog. So he would circle back behind the sleds on his skis and try to approach the dog and throw him bits of food and lure him ever closer. And he was making some progress. And then, uh, But the big day came when <clears throat> one day one of our wheel dogs, that's the dogs that are harnessed to the closest to the sled, um, one of our wheel dogs took a tumble and hurt its paw, so we cut him loose to stretch himself out for the day. So there was an empty spot, spot on the team near, near the sled. Uh, as the day wore on, we watched in amazement. As Sam, the wild dog, sidled ever closer to that sled, and then all of a sudden, bingo, he, he popped right into the empty spot. He was on a harness tongue clip, but he was running in position. And, of course, that then and there told the story, because we knew that he was just a long-lost dog, probably from a trapper's team on the Yukon River. He was looking for a place in a pack, and now he found it. So uh, Richard redoubled his efforts to befriend him and finally got a hold of him, flipped him into harness, clipped him on the sled. He pulled with abandon. He was a powerful sled dog. And then to add to the fun, um, the weeks that followed as we continued our way to Barrow, Alaska, Richard popped him into different spots in the sled from mm. position near the sled to swing positions up in the middle. And then one day, just for fun, he popped him into lead up in the front, and sure enough, he turned out to be a spot-on voice command lead dog. You know, wow. off or right, on by and, and on around, and he could do it all. And we steamed into Barrow, Alaska, a triumphant team on May 1st of that year with Sam and lead. And then a few years later, we steamed into the North Pole after an epic two-month trek across the Arctic Ocean, again on May 1st, and that year being 1986. And on that day at the top of the world, Sam was in lead position, and then a few years later, my colleague Will and a crew steamed into the South Pole, and believe it or not, on that day, once again, Sam was the lead dog, and on that day at the South Pole, Sam made canine history in a curious way because he then and there became the one and only dog who ever has or ever will be to both ends of the earth. Wow, that's an amazing story. 
Neat. Yeah. So Sam, the famous dog. Yeah. What breed was Sam? Well, we think he was what we call a Mackenzie Husky, a rare breed of sled dog that is no more. He might have been the last of the line, but it was a dog that they had bred. The trappers in the Yukon had bred to be quite big, but also quite leggy because of the depth of the snow there. And Sam was was the leggiest dog we'd ever had. So we're guessing he was a Mackenzie Husky from a trappers team. Wow. Neat story. So Sam found a home, and you guys found an amazing sled dog. Yes, yes, and then he joined us for two very powerful experiences. Um, and, uh, of course, that's a big part of the fun here. It always has been. It's all the dogs, these wonderful dogs. The dogs we have here at Wintergreen are um, all a breed called Canadian Inuit. They're the oldest breed of dog in the world, Most the dog that's most closely related to the, the uh, origins of all dogs, which, of course, is the timber wolf. We've got 70 purebred Canadian Inuit dogs here in the woods of Ely, Minnesota. Um, they all hail from the high Arctic, and we've brought the dogs that um, are the origins of our line. We've brought with, uh, from Eskimo villages throughout the Arctic, from Greenland and Alaska and Canada over over the years to create the Wintergreen Kennel. So, but they're beautiful animals, um, very affectionate, very friendly, um, and extremely powerful. So uh, it's really an honor and a joy to spend the winter with them. So what do they look like? How large are they? Well, you know, most folks nowadays, what, what people tend to know about dog settings is what you see on TV at the Iditarod. And those are small, sleek feed machines, usually with very light coats um, and very tender feet, because as people may have noticed, those dogs are all booted up to protect their tender foot pads. Um, but the dogs that we use here are more akin to what what you might have seen in old black-and-white pictures from uh, historic times in the Arctic, particularly the Inuit families with their dog teams, because ours are big, fully furred dogs, heavy coats, and they come in a beautiful array of colors from cinnamon, auburn, to white, and, and uh, brown, and tan, and, and often with a variety of markings. And, um, and uh, they have an inner downy coat, kind of a waxy inner coat that keeps them uh, warm and insulated, and then an outer guard hair, longer guard hair um, that often has a brindled shading to it. Um, that um, blocks the wind and sheds snow so they can stay warm and dry. Um, uh, and very, very broad, powerful chest and an extremely tough feet. Um, as mentioned, while most racing dogs out there are obliged to be bootied up every day, a, a racer will go through thousands of booties in a, in a given race because the dogs blow through them pretty quick. But if they, an unbootied dog will uh, wear its pads through pretty quick and, and take himself out of the running. But these Inuit dogs are so tough, there's no, no problems of any kind, and will go for years here without needing any attention, medical, veterinary care. They're um, just about as rough and tumble as you can get because they've evolved in the high Arctic with one of the world's most resilient cultures, the Inuit culture, the Eskimo culture. Um, and uh, so with the dogs here Wintergreen, it's probably the southernmost uh, kennel of these dogs to be found anywhere because, of course, they're most adapted to cold conditions and don't do too well in, in hot climate. So I don't know if they would... Uh, if you could handle a kennel of this kind of dog much much south of where we are here on the Canadian border in Minnesota. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need 
Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bentgate is here to help. Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check Bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. While doing your holiday shopping this season, be sure to stop by 180tac.com and pick up a camp stove for the adventurer on your list. The 180 stove and 180 flame are made right here in the United States and are sure to make your loved one a happy camper. Visit 180tack.com today. Why would you encourage people to try dog sledding in these winter expeditions? Well, of course, uh, the beauty of the uh, of the activity is, is the dogs themselves, and uh, everyone absolutely falls in love with the dogs here. The other intriguing quality of this of Inuit dogs is they have very very um, distinct personalities. So people all glam onto them pretty quick while they're here with us, and then. They look at that sea of dogs down there in the kennel and wonder, how am I ever going to remember their names? And then they're maids within a day or two, given the distinct personalities and the distinct colorations of all the dogs, that they've got their names dialed in pretty quick. Um, and, of course, then they become close friends with all of them. So that's a big part of the fun. But the other cool thing about dog setting, uh, it's, a, it's a winter activity that accommodates people of all ages and all backgrounds. We have folks from ages 5 to 85 here every winter, and they all do just great. Uh, and it also accommodates uh, people might be Olympic caliber athletes, which some folks might assume is required if you're going to be doing some winter backpacking or winter ski polking. Um, but here, most anyone uh, of any level of fitness can enjoy dog setting. And a third key reason, um, given the fact that undeniably winters seem to be getting wimpier most everywhere these days, uh, dog setting accommodates marginal winter conditions much more readily than, say, uh, other winter sports. You know, obviously, most folks look forward to having deep powder to going snowmobiling or downhill skiing or even cross-country skiing. And uh, in most areas nowadays, it's, that's hard to come by anymore, at least for long stretches. But um, So the dog setting, even if it's just a couple inches of white stuff on the ground, it's, they're good to go, and the dogs aren't discriminating. They're not concerned about having deep powder, and the dog setting is just as fun on a marginal winter as it is in a deep snow winter. So as we're finding here in northern Minnesota, of the various options for winter tourism, the one that seems to be most resilient with the changing world of winter is dog sledding. So I, you mentioned earlier Wintergreen Lodge. Uh, some people opt to not do the, the snow camping, but to come and do the dog sledding and stay in the lodge then. Yeah, that's right. We actually have a network of lodges. We have our own and then a few others that are um, that join our trail network. We've got about 60 miles of dog sledding trail right outside the door here. So of the 500 folks who join us each winter from around the world, um, probably close to half are opting to go for the gusto and, and, and join us for a ducted camping trip where they'll spend the first and the last nights here at our lodge, but they'll spend three, four, three or four days um, in between out on a ducted camping experience. And the other half of our guests are here for lots of lodge, lots of lodge dog sitting vacations where they'll be based in one or more lodges for a three or four or five night um, itinerary. 
um, where they're offsetting a different variety of trails and different scenery and different experiences every day. And then we have a wonderful French chef on staff that puts together fine fare for the meals each night. And um, so it's pretty luxurious, uh, even a few chocolates on the pillow now and then. But so we really put the polish on those trips. Um, and um, they, um, but as it turns out, quite a few of the folks that come with us on a lodge to lodge vacation, we, we have a large percentage of returning guests each year. They get to know their dog team, and they're pretty particular about wanting their same dogs back each winter. But often they'll start on a lodge to lodge trip, and then they'll up the ante and come back the next year to try a camping trip. And then eventually head to the Arctic with us, as several folks are going to be doing this next week, this uh, trip up in the Svalbard Islands north of Norway. It's another wintergreen trip, and it's kind of our, our high-end, high-Arctic trip. And um, so there's eight folks who started here on a lodge-based trip and uh, now are headed headed to Doxford with us up uh, just a few hundred miles from the North Pole. Wow, that's, uh, that's neat. You have a great progression there that people can sample and then get more involved and then get more dedicated and then dive in full bore into the sport. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a lifetime recreational outlet for a lot of folks once they, well, the winter is so lovely and beautiful, and then we can combine it with the um, the intrigue of the dogs, you know, and that's sort of the one-two punch for ensuring that uh, people get addicted to it pretty quick. You know, my only experience with dog sledding was uh, in Alaska, and uh, got to take a short ride with a team, and they loved it. And the, oh, yeah. you could feel the joy of the dogs, and you know it was it was one of those experiences I'll never forget. I, I fell in oh. love with the dogs within about ten minutes, you know. And oh, yeah. I'll, it, it's just a fascinating experience to to work with a team of dogs that are so excited about, yeah. you know, pulling the sled and being with the the humans that are there for the fun. It it was a, a beautiful experience for me. Yeah, I know. That's the intrigue of the dogs is, of course, dogs are amazing animals and they seem to be just hardwired to want to serve people. And, and um, <clears throat> But you never see that more pronounced than you do with dog sledding because they, as you experienced their courage in Alaska, uh, these sled dogs, uh, they are all about being put in harness and pulling those sleds. In fact, when we're hitting hitting the trail in the morning, if there's a dog that's misbehaved, the, the um, most significant uh, <clears throat> setback you can meet out to a disobedient dog is to simply leave them behind for the day they whine and haul and chop on their the kennels anxious to join the crew of heading heading out and uh, uh but it's uh it's an amazing instinct to see how powerful it is uh in those dogs that desire to pull and, and to please people and they, to put it all together on a dog setting on the dog setting trail so if someone wanted to try dog sledding um what kind of gear and experience do they need before they could come to your lodge and sample it well, all you need to bring is the right attitude and adventurous spirit and and and, uh, and uh, anxious for fun because the rest of it comes with the, with the territory here. Most of our guests each winter, at least most of the uh, new guests, um, have never been dog sitting before, and virtually all of them have never been dog sitting before, and, and a, a significant um, percentage of them have never seen snow before. So we do it all. It's a package deal. We provide the gear, the boots, the clothing, um, obviously the guides and the meals and the lodging. Uh, so it's just kind of plug and play. People arrive here. We put a pretty good packet of intro material out in advance, so people get a fix on uh, what uh, how how the system works here with the kind of clothing we rec- we recommend they have and the clothing that's available on loan here at Wintergreen, warm winter Sorel type pack boots, and then 
uh, layered uh, Anorak parka systems, um, uh, and obviously mitts and hats and socks of appropriate uh, service. And then, um, uh, but otherwise, it's, uh, they just need to uh, come ready for fun, and um, it, uh, it doesn't again require any particular level of uh, hardcore fitness. It doesn't require any uh, particular strength, um, and uh, I think. It, big part of the fun for my staff is that each week here at Wintergreen, we have such a wonderful variety of folks, again, folks from all over the world, plus people of all ages. We've got grandpas and grandkids, and we've got um, uh, folks that join us as single travelers and people that come as a family uh, and throughout the winter as well. We'll have contract courses with college groups and school kids. and um, so every week it's something different. Some some weeks we have an added focus where we'll be out dog sitting, but we'll bring along a published National Geographic photographer to help people tune up their shutterbug skills while they're on the trail because of uh, obviously it's a very photogenic experience. So we'll add a little extra uh, connection there by serving up the dog sitting as a photography skills workshop. We do the same with a writer's workshop. Um, so it's quite the variety pack. We found various. Uh, many variations on the dog sledding theme that helps inc- uh, ensure that uh, uh, those that enjoy the experience here are, are, uh, have added incentive to come back each year and, and add another little twist to the dog sledding, but um, anybody can do it. Nice. Well, Paul, I'm going to have to try that. You know, I, I've i long dreamed of doing more of it ever since, getting a taste of it in Alaska, so that sounds really, really fun. Um, tell us a story about a time that things didn't go right, Paul and what you had to do to manage and what lessons were learned from that. Yeah, well, uh, there's a little uh, witticism in the dog setting world that holds that you're, you're not a real monster <laughs> until you've lost your sled at least once, at least once. And uh, my first go at that little mishap um, takes me back to my roots here in the uh, world of winter and, and uh, um, in the northwoods of Minnesota. When uh, one early winter here... Uh, I fired up a sizable team of dogs to go out and gather firewood from the forest. And um, sitting a little cavalier, I um, was rocketing down the trail with a very powerful team of dogs and an empty sled, uh, fully anticipating coming home with a ton of firewood, loading that thing down. But on the way out, it was a rocket ship ride through the woods. And uh, I was being a little too brazen because I was actually just hanging out of the back of the sled with my skis on and just sort of skidgering along with the dog team. It was just sort of a tenuous control on the sled and the brake. A little difficult to do that when you're wearing skis, but it was a lot of fun, and I was enjoying it until until my ski caught a, um, a little corner on the trail, and, and I got spun around and, and uh, knocked off the sled, and, and I went tumbling into the woods, and the dog team rocketed on. Of course, the dogs now were on a full-board frolic uh, and uh, had no reason or incentive uh, to stop. Which threw me into a full war panic because as it was, it was late in the day and it was quite cold out and I was dressed in just um, some thin shell layers expecting I'd stay warm by skin. Um, but now I had no idea, rhyme or reason, to how far those dogs would go or whether I could ever catch up with them. So I gathered myself together and rocketed off on my skis in hopes, hoping upon hope that I could overtake them. But uh, they, had, they were picking up pace at a pretty good clip. Um, and my uh, worst fear was the fact that this particular trail dumped into a massive wilderness lake. The lake is 35 miles long and extends right up into Ontario, Canada. 
So once the dogs hit the shores of that lake, they're all bets were off whether they ever see them again. Uh, so with dusk rapidly encroaching, I was had adrenaline pumping and full board panic skiing behind them. And um, but then uh, finally, with just a whisper of daylight left, we hit the shores of this huge lake uh, and almost in tears then because. Uh, Darkness was settling over, and the wind was blowing, and their tracks were being obliterated by the blowing snow. And I looked doubtful I'd ever, ever find them out there. So I stood there on the shore of that lake, wondering what to do next, as I, the cold was starting to seep in and overtake me as well. And then just out of the corner of my eye, I caught a little, a little odd spot out miles out in the bay. That's a little dark spot that occurred to me. It was not an area I was aware that there were any islands or any other reason for something to. Uh, catch my eye out there so I thought I'd play that hunch and follow out there to see what that could be so I skied 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 out there in the growing darkness and the blowing snow and got miles out of the lake and then this amazing scene unfolded because as I approached that spot sure enough there they were my sled dogs all sitting on their haunches um, circled around a hole in the ice where there was an old timer sitting on his white bucket jigging a line through the ice fishing and but a curious thing happened. Of course, I was I was absolutely overwhelmed with relief, and I came skiing up upon this uh, this fellow uh, sitting fishing out there in the silence and the blowing wind. Um, and uh, he was facing away from me, so he never even uh, looked up to realize who was approaching him. But he, I'm sure you could hear the shushing of my skis as I came frantically skiing up to him to regroup my dogs. Um, and as I approached him, he said just loud enough so I could hear. He said. All I want to know is who's going to pay for my crappies. And as it happened, of course, the dogs had come racing across that bay, and that frolic caught wind of all his frozen crappies laying in there on the ice around his <laughs> hole and came racing up behind him, caught him unawares, vacuumed up all his frozen fish, and then sat there waiting for more. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this uh, old, old-timer old clearly had a pretty fun sense of humor, and, of course, we had a good laugh when... Uh, and. Uh, with night settling in, he he uh, I met when me enjoying my relief at re- retrieving my dogs. He uh, took me up on my offer to give him a ride home in the dog set. So we went back to his little cabin, had a nice cup of tea, and and uh, laughed about our experience together. What a great story! <laughs> wow, you know, had that fisherman not been there, it could have had a totally different outcome. No, oh, it could have been totally different. Those dogs would have kept going. They would have gone uh, 17, 18 miles, right, probably all the way into Canada, and that would have been the end of the line. I don't think I would have had a chance of ever seeing them again. So what would you have done to get through the night or, or survive the ordeal oh, no without your team? Survive. Yeah, with no equipment, no gear. I mean, it was a foolish maneuver on my part. I'd made a huge mistake to take off in the evening without even a lighter or a headlamp on me. I'll never make that mistake again. Every time I leave the door here, I've got a lighter and a headlamp in my pocket in case things go go wrong. Um, of course, nowadays I carry my cell phone too in case things go really wrong. But but I was completely unprepared. Um, and uh, of course, in, that night I, I probably could have made it back to my base camp. Um, although I'm sure I, I might also have succumbed to hypothermia before I got there because I had uh, broke into a. I made the huge the um, big mistake in winter travel because I had let go. of uh, better judgment and, and broke into a pouring, drenching sweat. So my clothing systems were soaked through by the time I got to towards that lake. And it didn't take long at all in the cold wind for to freeze up and start to descend into the darkness of hypothermia. But So I had to keep moving. <clears throat> Unfortunately, his cabin, his little ice fishing cabin, wasn't too far. So we got in there and got the stove going in time to 
get me back on track. But yes, it could have had a very different outcome for both me and the dogs. Wow, that's that's amazing, amazing story. It seems like those are the sorts of experiences, though, that teach us the most. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I say, I think of that experience every time when I grab my shell jacket to head out into the woods and I think about what I need to have on my person in case it doesn't go quite as planned. So, Paul, do you have any special projects in the works right now? Um, any books or events coming up you'd like to tell the listeners about? Yeah, I've authored a couple of books about adventures over the years, and one of them uh, is uh, going back into print right now with an update. Um, it's called North to the Pole. Uh, and it's a book that uh, Will Steger and I wrote about our um, expedition way back in 1986, which was the first confirmed expedition to reach the North Pole without resupply. Labeled a landmark in polar expedition by National Geographic. Um, Times Books had printed our um, first edition of North of the Pole, and it uh, became a bestseller, and it went on to travel around the world in many different languages and many different editions. Um, now it's being updated and going back into print. Uh, there were eight members on that expedition team, including Will and myself, and all of them went on to become exemplars in their fields of uh, adventure and polar travel. Um, so we've updated the book with chapters on what our various colleagues have been up to in the years since and all the amazing projects they've been engaged in. Um, so North of the Pole will be out here soon in hardcover, published by um, the Minnesota Historical Society Press, and um, will be available through various online booksellers this summer. Oh, that's fun. I'm going to have to grab a copy of that. So the, yeah. the original story was about the expedition to the North Pole. Yeah, correct. It was actually considered one of the top adventure books of uh, um, by National Geographic, one of the top 100 of all time. Uh, so it was very well received. The, we were adding some epilogue chapters that uh, talk about what's become of the world of polar adventuring since then, uh, since 1986. All the changes that have, been, uh, have come both to the natures of the polar regions with a, with a changing world and a changing climate and how that's impacted adventure and exploration up there, as well as an update on, uh, again, what um, all of our team members have been involved with in their own expeditions and adventures um, as well over the decades. Uh so that um, and a wonderful set of photographs and regripping photos of us dog sitting on the Arctic Ocean with temperatures that uh, approach 80 below zero. So mm. pretty epic place and a pretty epic adventure. And say again when the book will be out? That should be out uh, uh, early to mid-summer here this year yet. Okay, well, hey, we will keep our eyes and ears open for that one. And when the book comes out, let us know and we'll tell the listeners, hey, it's here so that they can grab a copy. Oh, that's great. Do you have any discounts or special promotions for our listeners? Yeah, we'd be happy to extend our $100 off sign-up discount for uh, New Adventures with Wintergreen. Um, so for folks that might want to give dog sitting a go, you could simply get a hold of us through dogsitting.com or our 800 number, which is 877-SLED-FUN. 877-SLED-FUN. Let us know you heard about us on the Adventure Sports Podcast, and we'll knock $100 off the package price for any of our dog sled vacation packages or our dog sled uh, camping adventures next winter, the winter of uh, 2015-16. We'd be happy to have you join us with that um, extra discount. Well, thank you for that very much. We will make sure that that information is in the show notes so that listeners can go there and, and get the links to your site and, and also that 1-800 number. How do you feel that your organization is benefiting society or individuals 
What a beautiful thing. So we live in a very small town you know, where tourism is a way of life for many people in our community, but the winters are often a long stretch of, of uh, tough sledding for many of the businesses that await the summer tourism season. So uh, we feel fortunate in that through what we do, and we're exclusively a winter-based business. We're able to keep the lights on from uh, the hotels and restaurants in our town with the several thousand folks that come up here every winter to go dog sledding with us or with the other dog sled tourism providers in town. So that's one of the gratifying elements of living in a town as small as Ely. There's about 3,000 folks here, but small enough and remote enough um, that you can really be part of the community, that you, you know that what you do to generate a livelihood for your own family uh, ripples through the entire town and, and helps create an income for many of the people. We're also gratified, too, uh, being engaged with uh, various organizations around the country uh, that um, provide refuge for dogs. Some of the sled dogs here are retired dogs that come from other kennels, often from racing kennels, where they may not have much of an opportunity to be involved in their uh, pulling world after they... Um, after their racing years are over, but uh, since we're not trying to set any ground speed records here at Wintergreen, we're able to accommodate some retired racing dogs to become part of the Wintergreen kennel and still enjoy doing what they love to do to pull, but not having to do it at the intensity that's involved in a dog sled race. So um, we have a um, small element of the Wintergreen kennel is this refuge service for retired sled dogs that can still enjoy their service days as part of the Wintergreen team. Hey, that's neat. You know, I also heard from... Two people I think you know, Lonnie Dupree and Steve Paragas, both told me about a Bering Strait expedition that had to do with good relations between the U.S. and the USSR. What was that about? Yeah, that was back in 1990-91 when Lonnie, my colleague, and I put together a project, um, again, back in the era of the Cold War, when, as it happened, um, uh, our two countries, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, had a curious connection because um, most folks may not be aware that Russia and, or the Soviet Union are the uh, country's nearest overseas neighbor. Just 50 miles separates us from that side of the world there in the Bering Strait. But that 50 miles effectively served as what was called as the Iron Curtain for the, the decades of most of the last century, um, or much like the Iron the um, the, uh, the Ice Curtain. Whereas the, ice, the Iron Curtain over in East and West Berlin, Berlin separated Germany, two sides of Germany, the Ice Curtain, as it was called in the Bering Strait, separated the two sides of the Arctic. Um, because the Inuit people on both sides of that imaginary line that runs down the center of the Bering Strait shared similar cultural, uh, same um, languages, um, and uh, shared blood relations. But all through the eras of the Cold War, uh, they were um, physically separated from each other. Uh, guards were posted the, uh, at the U.S.-Soviet border preventing any contact or communication between the native communities that call that part of the world home. Uh, and it took a tremendous toll on the cultural well-being of the Inuit families that lived up there. So, in 1990, we thought we'd take a crack at that odd little anomaly in the Arctic and try to bring the cultures back together again. Um, and we arranged permission from the uh, Soviet government through the Kremlin to gain access to eastern Siberia and then put together a team that included Inuit or native people from both sides of the border that traveled by dog sled to reconnect the cultures and continents that had once shared this close connection that was severed all during the decades of the Cold War. Uh, and it was an extraordinary gratifying experience. We were a few months on the trail with this very eclectic team of 12 folks speaking various languages and Inuit dialects, but representing cultures and communities from both sides of the border, from the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and then all along the way visiting these communities, both in Siberia and then later... Uh, 
as we crossed the Bering Strait on into Alaska, visiting these communities um, who had who were well aware that they had close blood relation aunts and uncles and cousins and kin just across the 50 miles of ocean that separated them, but with whom they had been denied any chance to have had contact. Um, but that all changed in the wake of our trek. It was called the Bering Bridge Expedition. Um, we were granted um, uh, we were granted meetings with uh, President Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, and what spun out of that uh, six months later was a treaty that opened the U.S.-Soviet border in the Bering Strait and uh, um, blew that wide open, much like when the Iron Curtain came down between East and West Berlin. That was all blind, blown wide open, and a similar thing happened up there in the Arctic as well, and, and we were um, very, Lonnie Dupree and I were very gratified to have been part of that process. Wow, that is a really neat story. Is there a way that listeners could learn more about that epic humanitarian adventure? My the other book I authored is called Sawing the Ice Curtain, Sawing the Ice Curtain, the Bering Bridge Expedition, um, and that's uh, not currently in print, but I know it's available readily through um, eBay and I think uh, through Amazon as well. Um, so uh, the Bering Bridge Expedition was the uh, book we put together about uh, that trek in 1990 that found us dog sitting from Siberia to Alaska. Well, hey, Paul, I can't let you go without asking you about the effort to protect the Boundary Waters. Steve Paragas mentioned this to us in an early episode, and I'd like to hear your take on that. Thanks to a threshold piece of federal legislation uh, put in place some 50 years ago in 1964, uh, the United States has 680 protected wilderness areas Um the unique ecological and recreational value that have been set aside in almost every state in the Union to forever, in perpetuity, be places of natural sights and natural sounds. And amazingly, of those 680, the most popular, the most beloved, the most heavily visited of the bunch is right outside my door here. It's, uh, it's this amazing uh, area, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area of uh, Minnesota, right here on the Canadian border, which is Canadian counterpart, an equally beautiful expanse of protected wilderness called Quetico in Ontario, uh, has uh, some 2 million acres and 2,000 lakes, most all of which are still clean enough you can dip your cup from and drink out of. It's also also one of the only places in North America where the entire uh, ecosystem, the entire web of life is still fully intact from, from the king of the jungle, the timber wolf, all the way down to the smallest critter the smallest little fur-bearing critter in the forest, a cute little thing called the redback vole. But all the parts and pieces of the ecosystem are fully intact and fully functioning in very few places on the planet. That's still happening as well. So we got this precious place here. Uh, and it, it's been here for over 100 years now, starting way back in the turn of the last century from Theodore Roosevelt, our most adventurous and most conservation-minded president, foresaw the unique qualities of this region and signed the initial legislation that ensured that the wheels were in motion for the increasing protections to be placed upon this region in the century that followed. So here we have today, and it hosts, this area hosts a quarter million people each year that uh, recognize its unique qualities and flock here from all over the planet to enjoy it by canoe and hiking in the summer and then, of course, dog sled and skis in the winter. So we have a century of protection and a quarter million uh, constituents that all love the place. And, and now suddenly we're a nightmare. Um, various threats have encroached upon this place in the last century, but 
the biggest of the bunch you know, staring us down right now because it, it's uh, settled into the it's a, uh, the uh, most toxic industry um, in the country. It's uh, recognized by the Environmental Protection Service as the most polluting of the industrial activities. It's sulfide mining. It's the process of extracting copper and nickel from a, a toxic strata of rock in the Earth's crust um, that when exposed to air and oxygen, this particular rock that begins to percolate sulfuric acid that uh, mm. makes its way into the ecosystem and can wreak havoc and, and render um, the entire watershed a biological dead zone. A- as it has done for the world, each and every place on the planet where they've attempted sulfide mining, and they've been attempting it for over a thousand years now, it dates all the way back to the Roman era, everywhere it's been done. Uh, it has uh, damaged ecosystems and in many places destroyed watersheds. And, and now, sadly, um, horrifically, you know, they're proposing to do it right up against one of the most water-intense places um, in, in, our, in our continent, the Boundary Waters here and all these thousands of lakes. So, you know, uh, does it seem appropriate uh, for the nation's most polluting and toxic industry to be allowed to operate right up, right up against the nation's most beloved and popular wilderness? Uh, it, it's just such a, a, a daunting prospect that sort of leaves our heads reeling here, and so we're mounting an effort best we can uh, to uh, put out the alarm and, and, and try to engage um, other folks who are fond of uh, beautiful uh, natural places and, and uh, lovely recreational landscapes like this canoe country to uh, see what we can do to put a stop to this specter of, uh, of sulfide mining taking place in the uh, boundary waters. Well, Paul, what can people do? How how can they get involved? Well, fortunately, we we do have a you know one a one stop shop. We uh, we have a website, uh, save the dot org, dot org, and the parts and pieces are all there for people to become engaged. Uh, from uh, something as simple as signing our petition, as we're taking our story to the White House this week, uh, federal legislation is being introduced to establish a mining exclusion zone around the Boundary Waters watershed. And so we're hoping with the support of the White House uh, that uh, that uh, may in fact get put in place. Um, and so we all have an opportunity to lend our support to that uh, with actions as simple as signing the petition, lending your own voice in favor of, um, of such protection for the area. And um, you can find that, again, at our website, savethebondywaters.org. And there as well, suggestions of additional support that anyone can lend to this cause by writing the key uh, congressional leaders uh, engaged in this issue, and, and names and addresses, of course, are included there, um, as well as opportunities as well to lend support to an advocacy workshop here in Minnesota that's uh, trying to tackle this issue through financial contributions or, or other avenues to help our organization um, do its uh, job and do it quickly to catch us while we can before... Um, the uh, process gets, gets too far beyond us. Well, Paul, it sounds like a very worthwhile effort. I'm glad to hear that people have championed that cause. Um, we need to protect our natural areas, definitely. I mean, it's necessary that you know we have mining, we have agriculture, we have industry, but we don't have to have them in the same natural areas that we should most want to protect. Well, that's right. And, um, 
The world has a lot of copper. That's the good news. The U.S. Geological Survey uh, projects that there is enough copper mined in safer places around the planet to sustain the world's needs for hundreds of thousands of years. So the issue is not that we need to have this copper. This is arguably the worst place on the planet extracting copper through the process of sulfide mining. So plenty of other places uh, far more appropriate with far fewer dangers to extract what we need to ensure that uh, uh, we have the, the, the metals that service our technology and, and uh, but um, we also need to have um, beautiful places of respite like the body waters. And um, so it's a matter of balancing that here. And, um, it seems like a no-brainer to most of us that, uh, that places like this should be set aside in perpetuity with recreational and ecological resources and, and not subjected to the threat of industries that are considered um, among the most polluting and, and, and toxic on the planet. Well, good for you guys. Well, Paul, hey, thank you very much for your time today. The information that you shared with us about dog sledding and Arctic expeditions and about the efforts to save the Boundary Waters. Wow, we really appreciate it. Friends, until next time, this has been another Adventure Sports Podcast. And until the next episode, get out there and have some fun.